Hello guys, so today I am reading Cinderella is Dead by Callan Biron. Chapter 1 Cinderella has been dead for 200 years. I have been lo- in love with Ellen for the better part of 3 years. And I w- am about 2 minutes away from certain death. When the palace guards find me and they will, I am going to die in forest on Lily's, Lily's eastern border. But I don't care. The only thing I am focused on is Ellen who is pressed up against the tree directly across from me. The place palace guards don't see her yet, but they are headed her way. They stop a few feet from where she is hiding. Her eyes grow wide in the shadowy confines of the forest. I met her gaze across the white swath of carriage pathway that separates us. Don't move, Erin. Don't make a sound. I fell asleep in the tower last night, one of them says. Someone woke me, but still I was lucky if the king found out I'd be my head on a pike. You going to the ball? One man asked. No, says another. All work and no fun for me. I'm afraid. That's a shame. I'm hearing the girls in this year's group are the prettiest lot in a generation. In that case, is your wife going to have an accident? It'd be a shame if that first step down to your cellar suddenly came loose. They laugh from the guard, hissing and sputtering and... From the sound of it, they are falling all over themselves. The voices move away from us until I can't hear them anymore. I pull myself up and run to Erin, who is still covering behind the tree. They are gone, I say. I take hold of her hand and try to calm her. She peers around the tree, her face tight with anger and jerks away from me. Of all the impossible things you have ever convinced me to do coming out here has to be the worst one. The guards almost spotted us. But they didn't, I reminded her. You asked me to meet you here, she says, her eyes narrow and suspicious. Why? What is so important? I have rehearsed what I am going to say to her, practiced it over and over in my head. But as I stand in front of her, I am lost. She's angry with me. That's not what I want. I care about you more than anything. I want you to be happy. I want us to be happy. She stays quiet as I stumble over my words, her hands clenched at her sides. Things feel hopeless so much of the time, but when I'm with you, stop, she says, her expression a mask of anger. Is this what you brought me out here for? To tell me the same thing you have been telling me since forever. It's not the same thing. The ball is so close now, this may be a last chance to leave. Erin's bro shoots up in surprise. Leave? She comes closer, looking me dead in, dead in the eye. There is no leaving, Sophia. Not for you, not for me, not for anyone. We are going to the ball because it is the law. It is our only hope for making some kind of life. Without each other, I say, the thought makes my chest ache. And in straightens up, but cast her gaze to the ground. It can be no other way. I shake my head. You don't mean that. If we run, if we try... Laughter in the distance cuts my plea shot. The guards are circling back and then ducks behind the tree and I dive into the brush. You don't get to work in the palace if you don't know how to say yes and shut your mouth. Says one of the guards as he comes to stop directly in front of my hiding spot. If you don't have the stomach to do some of the things he's asking for, you're better off without with us. You're probably right, say another man. Through the branches, I see the tree Ellen is hiding behind. The hem of her dress has caught on a rough patch of bark and is poking out. The guard looks in her direction. What's that? He asks. 
He takes a step towards her, his hand on the hilt of his weapon. I kick against the bush. The entire thing shakes, causing a casket of rust-colored leaves to rain down on me. What was that? One of the men asked. They turned their attention back to me. I shut my eyes tight. I am dead. I think of Ellen. I hope she'll run. I hope she'll make it back. This is all my fault. I only wanted to see her to try to convince her one last time that we should leave Lil once and for all. Now I'll never see her face again. I glance toward the tree line. I can make a run for it. Draw the attention of the guards away from her. I might be able to lose them in the woods, but even if I can't, Ellen can get away. My body tenses and I, and I pull my skirt between my legs, tucking it into my waistband and slipping off my shoes. There is something in there, a guard says, now only an arm's length from me. The guards move closer, so close I can hear them breathing. I glance past them. The there is a flash of baby blue between the trees. Ellen's made a run for it. A clanking sound cuts through a air metal on metal, a sword down from its scabbard. Over the rush of blood in my ears and the pondering of my own heart, a horn blasts three blaring notes. We have got a runner, a gruff voice sings. I freeze. If I'm caught this far into the woods, the guards will make an example of me. I picture myself being paraded to the streets and shackles, maybe even stuffed into a cage in the center of town, where Lil's people are so often made to endure public humiliation as penance for stepping off the beaten path. The men's voices and footsteps move away from me. I'm not the runner they are talking about. I haven't even started running yet. My heart crashes in my chest. I hope they can't gain on everything quickly enough. The guards' voices trail off, and when they are far away from me, I tuck my shoes under my arm and run into the shadowy cover of the forest. Ducking behind a tree, a tree I peer around the trunk as several more guards gather. They have got an older woman with them, already bound at the wrist. I breathe a sigh of relief and immediately fear a searing stab of guilt. This woman is now at the mercy of the king's men. I turn and make a break for it with my legs pumping and lungs burning. I think I hear the snap and snarl of hounds, though I can't be sure. I don't dare look back. I trip and smash my knee on a rock, tearing the flesh. The pain is blinding, but I pull myself up and keep going until the trees start to thin. At the path that leads back to the heart of town, I pause to catch my breath. And then is nowhere to be found. She's safe, but this is Lil. No one is really ever safe. Chapter 2 As I trek home, all I can think of is Eden. The forest is deep and dangerous and most important off limits. I know she won't stay hidden. She'll make her way home, but I need to know she's safe. The bell tower in the town square rings out the hour. Five loud clanks. I'm supposed to meet my mother at the seamstress's shop for a fitting. And she specifically told me to come there at bath with my hair washed and a fresh face. I look down at myself. My dress is smudged with dirt and blood and my bare feet are caked with mud. I escape the king's men but when my mother sees me, she'll probably end me herself. Guards patrol the streets, many more than usual now that the ball is so close. I keep my head down as I pass by. They aren't too concerned with me. They are on high alert because of what people in Lyle are calling the incident. It happened two weeks ago in the northern city of Chione. There were rumors that an explosion damaged that the Colossus, a 20-foot likeness of Mercedes' savior, Prince Charming, and that the people responsible were furred into Lyle under cover of night 
and taken into the palace to be questioned by the king himself. Whatever happened, the details he was able to pry from them sent him into a state of panic. For the first week after the incident, he ordered the meal stopped. Our curfew was moved up to up two hours and pamphlets were distri distributed that assured us the incident was nothing more than an attempt by a rogue band of marauders to vandalize the famous statue. It also stated that the per per perpetrators were put to death. When I get home, the house is empty and silent. My father is still at work and my mother is waiting for me at the seamstress's shop. For a moment, I stand up in the center of the floor, looking up at the wall hangings over the door. One is a portrait of King Stephen, haggard and grey. It shows him as he was before his death, only a few years ago. Another is of King Manford, the current king of Mercenaries, who wasted no time in pushing out his official royal portrait and requiring that it be hung in every house and public space in town. Our new king is young, only a few years older than I am, but his capacity for cruelty and his lust for absolute control rivals his predecessor. And it is on full display in the third frame hanging over our door. The Lil decrees. First, a minimum of one pristine copy of Cinderella will be kept in every household. Second, the annual ball is a mandatory event. The three trips are permitted, after which attendees are considered forfeit. Third, participants in unlawful, unsan unsanctioned units, unions will be considered forfeit. All members of households in Mercedes are required to designate one male of legal age to be head of household and his name will be registered with the palace. All activities undertaken by any member of the household must be sanctioned by a head of household. For, for, for their protection, women and children must be in the permanent place of resistance, uh, resistance, residence by the stroke of eight each night. A copy of all applicable laws and degrees along with an approved portrait of His Majesty will be displayed in every household at all times. These are the hard and steadfast rules set forth by our king and I know them by heart. I go to my room and light a fire in the small herd in the corner. I consider staying until my mother comes looking for me, but I'm worried that she already thinks something terrible has happened. I'm not where I should be. I bandage my knee with a clean strip of cloth and wash my face in the basin. My copy of Cinderella's Train, a beautifully illustrated virgin my grandmother gave me, sits on a small wooden pedestal in the corner. My mother has opened it to the page where Cinderella is preparing for the ball, the fairy godmother providing her with everything her heart desired, the beautiful gown, the horse and carriage and the fabled glass slippers. Those attending the ball will reread this pa passage to remind themselves what is expected of them. When I was small, I used to read it over and over again, hoping that a fairy godmother would bring me everything I needed when it was my turn to go to the ball. But as I go, got older, as the rumors of people being visited by a fairy godmother became fewer and farther between, I began to think the tale was nothing more than that, a story. I told my mother this exact thing once and she became distraught, telling me what now I certainly wouldn't be visited if I voiced so much doubt. I never said anything about it again. I haven't looked at the book in years. Haven't read it aloud like my parents want me to, but I still know every line. 
and ivory colored envelopes sits on the mantel. My name scrawled across the front in billowing black script. I take it down and pull out the folded letter from inside. The paper is thick, dyed the deepest onyx. I read the letter inside as I have done a million times since it's arrived the morning of my 16th birthday. Sophia Grimmins, King Fanford requests the honor of your presence at the annual ball. This year marks the bicentennial of the first ball where our beloved Cinderella was chosen by Prince Charming. The festivities will be grand and made all the more special by your attendance. The ball begins promptly at 8 o'clock on the 3rd of October. The chosen ceremony will begin at the stroke of midnight. Please arrive on time. We eagerly await your arrival. Sincerely, His Royal Highness King Manford. On its face, the invitation is beautiful. I know girls who dream of the of the day their invitation arrives, so think of little else. But as I turn it over in my head, head hand, I read the part of the letter that so many of those eager young women miss along its outer edge in a pattern that reminds me of ivy snaking its way up lattice work. Our words in white script that give a dire warning. You are required to attend the annual ball. Failure to comply will result in imprisonment and seizure of all assets belonging to your immediate family. It is the 1st of October. In two days, my fate will be decided for me, as terrible as the consequences will be if I am not chosen. The danger in being selected might be worst. I push those thoughts away and shove the letter back in the envelope. I leave the house and make my way to the dressmaker's shop, taking the long route and hoping I'll run into Erin. I'm worried to death about her. But I know my, my mother is worried about me too. The shops along Market Street are lit up and bustling with people making last-minute preparations for the ball. A line winds out of the wig makers. I peer into his shop window. He's really outdone himself this year. Elaborately styled wigs crowd his sh shelves. They remind me of wedding cakes, tires open tires of hair in every shade. The ones on the top shelf featuring things like bird's nest with replicas of eggs tucked inside. A young girl sits in the wig maker's chair as he placed a four-tired piece atop her head. It's layered in fresh pink peonies topped with a small model of Cinderella's enchanted carriage. It teeters precariously as her mother beams. I hurry past, cutting through the throngs of people and ducking down a side street. The shops here aren't ones that my family and I have ever set foot in. They're for people with enough money to buy the most outrageous and unnecessary baubles. I'm not really in the mood to feel bad about what I can and cannot, can't afford, but this is the quickest way to the town square where I can cut across and find Ellen before I meet my mother. In the winter of one shoe story, Shoe story, Cinderella's glass slippers sit on a red velvet cushion illuminated by candlelight. The little placard next to it reads, Place approved replica. I know if my father had the money, he'd snatch them up immediately, hoping they'd set me apart. But if they're not enchanted by the fairy godmother herself, I don't see the point. Shoes made of glass are an accident waiting to happen. Farther down, there is another line snaking out of a small shop with shuttered windows. The sign of the door reads Helen's Wonderments. Another sign lists the names of tinctured and potions Helen can reop, find a suitor, banish an enemy, love everlasting. My grandmother told me Helen was just some wannabe fairy godmother and that her potions were probably watered down by barley wine. But that didn't stop people from putting their trust in her. 
As I pass by a woman and her daughter who looks about my age, hurry out of the shop. The woman has a heart-shaped glass pile in her hand. She pops the cork and pushes it to the girl's lips. She drinks the whole thing in one long gulp, tilting her head back and looking up at the evening sky. I hope the things my grandmother said weren't true for that poor girl's sake. Chapter 3 I make a quick turn and hurry toward the town square. The bicentennial celebration has been going on for a week and will culminate with the annual ball. Until then, the festivities continue every night. Before curfew, people crowd the square to make music and drink, and tonight is no exception. As I push through, trying to cut directly across the square, vendors are hawking their goods in the shadow of the bell tower, a gleaming white structure with four tires topped by a golden dome. There are jewelry and dresses from the city of Sion in the north and stained gloves, makeup and perfume from the city of Tilspire in the south. As I zigzag through the booths, searching the crowd for Erin's face, I notice a young woman standing on a raised platform. She is reciting passages from Cinderella. The palace issue volume sits on a bookstand in front of her. The ugly stepsisters had always been jealous of Cinderella. But seeing how lovely she looked that night, they realized that they could never be as beautiful as she and in a fit of rage, tore her dress to shreds. People who have gathered around Jiren Boo. I keep walking. I still don't see Erin. And an all-consuming terror creeps in. I tell myself she's at home. But I have to get there to make sure. A booth, much more crowded than the others, sits near the middle of the square and a crowd of people blocks my path. As I try to maneuver around them, I see them all the fusses over a game being played in the booth. There are shoes piled up and little girls pay a silver coin to be blindfolded as they pick one set of slippers and try them on. If they fit, they win a small prize. A beaded bracelet or necklace along with a little slip of parchment that reads, I was chosen at the bicentennial celebration. A little girl with a crown of bouncy brown ringlets beams as her tiny foot slides into a violet-colored shoe with a tall heel. It's all good fun until another little girl picks the wrong size shoes and wins a slip of paper with a small portrait of Cinderella's fabled stepsisters, the face twisted into hideous smiles. She looks at her mother. Mama! I don't want to be like them. Her bottom lip trembles as, a sh- as she chokes back a so- sob. A palace guard laughs uproariously as her mother scoops her up and carries her away. I slip through an opening and move from the booth toward the center of the square where a fountain, a life-sized replica of Cinderella's carriage, stands made entirely of glass. It shimmers in the fading sun. Water spouts up around it and in the bottom of the pool are hundreds of coins. It's tradition to make a wish, much like Cinderella did so many years ago and toss a coin, preferably silver, into the fountain. I remember tossing coins in when I was younger, but I haven't turned in years. Sophia! Liv bounced towards me. Her long brown hair is pulled up into a bun on top of her head and her rosy cheeks look like candied apples on her tawny skin. She looks me over. What happened to you? I look down at my dress, which I hadn't bothered to change. 
You don't want to know. Where are you off to? She asked. I am looking for... I hesitate. It's too dangerous to talk in public about what happened out there in the woods. I am going to my fitting. Liv's face twisted up in a look of disbelief. You were supposed to do that weeks ago. The ball is two days away. I know, I say. I have been avoiding it. There's an opening and I move to leave. But Liv loops her arm around mine. She shakes her head. You are so stubborn. Your mother must be pulling her hair out. She laughs and holds up something wrapped in a shiny silver cloth. You'll never believe what I've worn at one of the booths. She unwraps the object. It's a stick. I look at Liv and then back to the stick. She's beaming and I'm thoroughly confused. Are you feeling okay? I put my hand on her head to see if she's running a fever. She laughs and play, playfully bats my hands away. I'm fine. But look, it's a wand. A replica of the very same one the fairy grand, uh, godmother used. I glance at the stick again. I feel like you got taken advantage of, she frowns. It's a real replica. The men said it came from a tree in the white wood. No one goes into the white wood. Erin steps out from behind Liv and my heart almost stops. It takes everything in me not to grab her and pull her close to me. Close your mouth before a bug flies in, says Liv, looking around nervously. You're safe, I say, relieved. Erin notes. And you are a mess. I wish I'd taken the time to clean up a little better before I left my house. Still lovely, of course, she says quickly. I don't think you can help that. I glance at her. Maybe Liv can use her hand, want to help me clean up. Liv points the stick at me and gives it a flick. She frowns. I always hoped that one day I develop some magical powers. I guess today is not that day. I pat her arm. No one has seen that kind of magic since Cinderella's time. I doubt it even exists anymore. A hush falls over them and they exchange worried glances. Of course it exists, Erin says in a whisper. You know the story as well as anyone. If you are the diligent, if we know the passages, if we honor our fathers, we might be granted the things Cinderella was. And if we do all those things and nothing happens, no fairy, godmother appears, no dress, no shoes, no carriage, then what? Do we still believe it? Don't question the story, Sophia. Lift steps closer to me. Not in public, not in anywhere. You know why, Ellen says in a low tone. You must put your faith in the story. You must take it for what it is. And what is it? I ask. The truth, Erin says curtly. I don't want to argue with her. She's right, Liv says. The guards in the royal garden are grown at the very spot where the remnants of her carriage were gathered up. And I've heard that when her tomb was still open to the public, that the slippers were actually inside. Another rumor, I say. I remember hushed conversations between my grandmother and her friends about the tomb. No one has seen it in person in generations. Just more stories to trick young girls into obedience. Liv and Erin both look like they have had about enough of me. Well, I'm still hoping to earn the favor of a fairy godmother, says Liv. Liv's plan seems risky. My mother hopes for the same thing, but has arranged for my dress on the off chance I don't find a magical old lady in my garden. The night of the ball... If anyone shows up with anything less than a gown, fit for Cinderella herself, they'll risk their safety. 
and I don't think the king cares if it comes from a fairy, a dress shop, or some place else. What matters is that we look like a fairy godmother blessed us with her magic. Do your parents have a plan in case that doesn't work? I ask. I don't want Liv to be in danger, danger because they waited too long to get her what she needed. This will be Liv's second trip to the ball. A third is permitted, but it would break Liv's spirit and send her family to ruin. Do you ever get tired of trying to get yourself arrested? Aiden asked. Taking life, taking life, talking like that is going to get you locked up. Okay, says Liv, stepping between us and shaking her head. Here. She reaches into her stash, uh, satchel and pulls out a handful of coins. They are not silver, but they'll have to do. Let's make wishes in the fountain like we used to. She takes my arm and leads me to the fountain. Erin comes up beside me, her so shoulder brushing against mine. I think I hear her sigh, and she gives a little shake of her head. Behind us, music continues to play, and people laugh and chatter away. Palace guards roam the square, their royal blue uniforms neatly pressed, their swords glinting in the lamplight, Liv hands Erin and me a coin each. Make a wish, says Liv. She closes her eyes and tosses in a coin. I look at Erin. I wish you'd have you leave Lil with me right now. Leave Mercedes. Leave all this behind and run away with me. I toss my coin into the water. Life ga Liv gasps. Erin's eye flutter open. Her bro forage. Her mouth turned down. And I wish you'd just accept the ways things are. She tosses her coin into the fountain. I wish I could decide that nothing else matters. But I'm not like you, Sophia. I'm not asking you to be like me, I say. Erin's eyes mist over and her bottom lip trembles. Yes, you are. Not everyone can be so brave. My chest feels like it's going to cave in. I step away and Erin rushes off, disappearing into the crowd. I don't feel brave. I feel angry, worried and doubtful. That not anything will ever change. I prepare to run after her. But live catches me by the arm and pulls me back. You have to let it go, Sophia, Liv says. It cannot be. She leads me away from the fountain and I push away the urge to cry, to scream out. We move around a large circle of blackened grass. Liv looks down at it. What is this? I ask. Something happened here a few nights ago. The humor is that someone created an explosion, tried to destroy the fountain. They failed, Liv turns to me. Worry plastered on her face. Don't you see? There is no resisting. We can't go against the book of the king. I shake my head. I don't want to accept that this is all there is for me. Liv glances around and then leans close. A group of children found a baby in the woods by Grey Lake. Another one? I ask. How many is that? Six since the leaves have started to turn. A girl just like the others. I try to tally up how many young women have turned up dead. In Lily, in the years since I have been old enough to understand such things, the dead number in the dozens, but the missing are more that I can't, I can count. Go to your fitting, Sophia. Liv says, squeezing my hand. Maybe someone at the ball will take you away from all this. There is a ring in her voice. Maybe Liv wants to be taken away. I can't blame her, but that's not for me. I don't want to be saved by some knight in shining armor. I'd like to be the one in the armor and I'd like to be the one doing the saving. 
I make my way to the seamstress shop in a days and arrive a full two hours late. Peering through the window, I see my mother chatting away with the other women in the shop. They laugh and smile, but her mouth is drawn tight as she rests her chin on tented fingers. I hate that I have made her worry. I take a deep breath and open the door. My mother stands and exhales, letting the hair hiss out between her teeth, a look of relief on her face. Where have you been? Her gaze wanders over me. And what have you been doing? I was. She puts her hand up. It doesn't matter. You are here now. She glances past me out to the street. Did you walk here alone? No. I lie. Liv and Ellen walked with me to the end of the street. Oh, good. I'm sure you have heard about the incident at Grey Lake. I nod. She shakes her head and then forces a quick smile and instructs the seamstress and her helpers to get to work. The pieces of my dress are sewing sewing into place to ensure a perfect fit. My mother fusses over the color of the piping along the hem of the gown. Apparently, it's supposed to be rose gold, not regular gold. So it has to be taken off and reattached. I think the entire ensemble would look very nice at the bottom of the waste basket, maybe doused with lamp oil and set on fire. No one asks me what color I'd like to be or how I'd like to fit it. My mother wrings her hands together and paces the floor in front of me. She's worried sick about every little detail as if my life depends on these things. I try to silence the voice inside me that tells me it very well. Might. It's gorgeous, Sophia, my mother says as she, as she looks over me over. I nod. I can't think of anything to say. I still can't believe this day has actually arrived. I'd hope to be far from Lyle Lil, at this point. Maybe far from Mosley's altogether with Erin by my side, leaving the, leaving the king and his rules behind us. Instead, I'm here, preparing to give in to this terrible inevitability. The seamstress helps me out of the dress so she can pack it up and send it home with me. With us. <laughs> oh, plum purple bluish colors the side of her neck. It was started to turn green around the edges. What happened to your neck? I whisper. Though I know the likely source of her pain, so many women in Lyle carry around similar burdens. The seamstress looks at me quizzically and quickly adjusts her collar. Don't you worry about that. It will be gone in a week, like it never happened. Sophia, my mother interrupts, why don't you go out and get some air, but stay on the path where I can see you. I stare down at the seamstress who smiled as little to mask her pain. I gather up my skirts and walk out to the footpath leading up. To the shop, the sun fades as the lamplighters begin their nightly rounds. Even in the encroaching darkness, the watchtowers loom in the shadows. Stone sentries, their lookout windows facing inward. A mural of the king marks the side of a building across the street. He's pictured on a horse at the head of an army of soldiers, his arm outstretched holding a sword. I bet he's never led an army anywhere except across the squares of a chessboard. Hard as I try, I cannot set aside thoughts of what it will be like to be chosen. In two days' time, I could be given to a man I know nothing about, who knows nothing about me. My own wants and needs will be silenced in favor of what he thinks is best. What if he thinks nothing of putting a bruise on my neck? And if I am not chosen, what then? And Erin? My dear Erin, what will become of us? A shiver is a nod grows in my throat. My mother comes out the street and throws a shawl around my bare shoulders. 
You don't want to catch a chill so close to the ball, Sophia. She looks around cautiously, lowering her voice. I wish it didn't have to be this way, but... Yes, I know. This is just how it is. I grit my three teeth, stiffing the urge to scream for the thousandth time. I look at her and for a split second she lets the mask slip and I see the pain in her face. She seems older in the pale light of the evening sky. Her gaze moves over my face and down to my dress for an instant before she looks away. Does it suddenly seem real to you? I ask. She presses her mouth into her like, yes. I have wished that this day would never come, I say. So have I, she says quietly. But here we are and we must make the best of it. My mother returns to the shop, but I linger for a moment before joining her as the seam stress and I help her finish packing my dress. I look up at the starry sky. Things will be different now and forever. There will be no going back once the ball has taken place. I feel a sadness, almost grief-like in its depth, threatening to consume me. I pull my shawl tighter and hurry inside. Chapter 4 Mr. Langley, a friend of my father's, has a son who's agreed to drive our carriage for us while my father is working. He meets us at the road and helps us load up for the, the dress. He locks eyes with me and smiles as I climb into the carriage. I look away from him. I'm not in the mood to pretend to be flattered. My mother climbs in behind me and the carriage moves jokily down the road. Heavy curtains cover the windows, but the chilly night air still makes it ways inside. I tighten my cloak around my shoulders and pull the hood down, covering most of my face, but this isn't clear enough to signal to my mother and I don't want to talk. He's quite a handsome young man, isn't he? She asks. I watch my mother as my eyes as she eyes me carefully. Who? Mr. Langley's son, of course. If he were to find you agreeable, he would have to make an official petition for you at the ball. I'm sure he won't be the only one interested. I shake my head. Is there ever a time when you're not thinking of ways to marry me off to the first half-decent men you can find? Half-decent might be the best we can hope for. She looks down into her lap, pressing her lips together. I pull open the curtain and look out the window, more to keep my eyes from rolling back into my skull than to take in the view. I'm not angry at her specifically. Her way is the way of most people in Lyle. Always looking for an opportunity to make the dark seem brighter. She's good at it, but I'm not. I can't help but see the ball for what it really is, a trap. We ride through Lil's twisting streets and the descents, the palace's massive turrets stick up over the sloping landscape. It is extravagant, gaudy, a reminder to the rest of us that no matter how hard we try, we will never be completely worth of that kind of wealth, that privilege. Just outside the palace grounds is the greatest section of Eastern Lil, where the highest ranking members of the aristocracy live close enough to the king to make themselves feel special but far enough away so they didn't get the impression they were equal to him the people there hoarded their wealth improving their own lives while the rest of the city fell into decay as their carriage pulls into the western part of the city the identical houses along the cobalt alleys lean on one another as if they might collapse in one themselves without the added support the evening hours bring them with them a particularly confusing mixture of smells. Scents of freshly baked bread and boiled meat waft through, but they are 
tinged with the distinct smell of excrement, human and animal alike. No lamps light my street other than the ones people keep in their windows. We roll to a stop and my mother climbs out. I stand on the carriage step for a moment, hoping to put some distance between us. She isn't going to let me go to bed without having a talk. She reaches the front step and looks back at me, a sorrowful expression down across her face. Mr. Langley's son press places the dress back box on the doorstep, then clears his throat. I glance over at him, and he flashes another white slime, a smile. I'm about to tell him that he looks ridiculous and is clearly making a fool of himself when my mother calls to me. Sophia, come inside. She knows me too well. She pushes the door open as the bell stalls, signaling curfew for Lil's women and children. Her foot keeps this time with the thunder songs at the final stroke of eight. We are meant to be inside behind the locked doors. Sometimes I stand on the front stoop as the last bell tolls just to see what might happen on those occasions. My mother darts around the house in a fit, wishing I would sit down and stop trying to get myself arrested like some damned fool. When I was little, my mother told me that if I wasn't inside at the toll of the final bell, that the ghost of Cinderella's evil stepsister would swoop in and take me away. Now that I'm older, I understand that it's not vengeful spirits I need to be afraid of. The king and his men pose the biggest threat. I step out and make my way to the door, avoiding my mother's stare and squeezing past her as she closes and locks it behind me. I head for the stairs. Sit, she says as she pulls a chair out from our dining room table. She walks to the other side and sits down. I want to go upstairs and fall into bed, but we'll have to have this little talk first. I join her at the table and stare across at her. Most people think my mother and I are sisters, so like are our features. Our dark curly hair is identical except that her strands are lightly flecked with grey. We share the same deep brown complexion, but she has lines set in at the corners of her mouth. People call them laugh lines, but I'm certain hers are from frowning. I was chosen by your father my first year at the ball, and it was a good match, she begins. He was the son of a land baron and is a decent man, a good man. I know, she's told me this before, but an, an urgency tints her voice now, like she's trying to convince me that there's some glimmer of hope, but some are not so lucky, she says, her tone dead serious. Do you understand what that must be like to be to not be chosen? What the repercussions of that would be? Of course I understand. This possibility scares her almost more than anything else. Girls who aren't chosen by their third ball are considered forfeit, ending up in Workhouses are in servitude, but in recent years, several girls have disappeared into the castle and were never heard from again. The mother runs her hands over the pleats in her dress and sighs, Tell me something, Sophia. Do Erin and Liv know how difficult you can be? How stubborn? Yes, I say. It is a half-truth. Erin and Liv are my closest friends and I can be myself around them for the most part. But even in their presence, I feel like I have to hold back because Lil has left its mark on them too. They heard me speak of leaving, of resisting what is expected of us. And they tell me to lower my voice. Those things are simply not done. No one leaves, no one resists who isn't curting death. I do hope Lil finds a match this year. My mother stays standing off. Her parents are very worried and if she's not chosen this time, she'll only get one more chance. That a girl is considered a spinster, if not married by 18, is wrong, and that boys don't even have to attend the ball until they want, to is a sickening double standard. It's not her fault she wasn't chosen. Liv hadn't been selected at last year's ball. Erin and I had discussed it, and neither of us could understand why. Liv almost never brought it up, but I had gleaned that, some, gleaned that someone had made a claim on her and at the very last minute had chosen another girl.
Now Liv was brandishing a replica wand, hoping to conjure some magical assistance. After everything they'd seen and gone through the previous year, Liv and her parents still hope she'd receive a visit from a fairy godmother. They had convinced themselves that one didn't show up the year before because they hadn't been pious enough in following Cinderella's example. I'm not going to be visited by some magical old crown, I say. Frustration bubbling come inside me. Maybe not, my mother says in a whisper. But you look like you were, and that is what the suitors and the king care about most. You think they would care about me, about what I feel? Even as I say the words, I know they fly in the face of everything I know to be true, and my mother agrees. Why in the name of King Manford would they ever think that? She asks. She, sh- she squeezes her hands together like she's praying with her skin over her knuckles stretched out. You, you have, we, we, we have... Got one one chance at this. You must find a match. Going back to the ball a second time is an embarrassment. Her words cut me like a knife. Is live an embarrassment? How can you say about that about her? It's not her fault. Some disgusting old man changed his mind. She looks away. She knows what's at stake. Foolish wishes and magic aren't going to say what. She must conform, know her place, and do whatever must be done to find a match. And so do you. She leans toward me. I know you're different and that this will be hard for you, but you have no choice. Different? That's how she sees me. And every time she uses that word, a distinct air of disapproval accompanies it. Lyle has left its stain on her too. I want to be with Erin, I know. She says, glancing around as if someone might hear. But you will keep that to yourself. Her tone is flat, emotionless. It's how she protects herself from the reality of what I'm facing. I was 12 when I told my parents that I would much rather find a princess than a prince. They had gone into a state of panic from which they emerged with a renewed sense of determination. They told me that in order to survive, I would have to hide how I felt. I was never good at it and the weight of that mask grows heavier with each passing year. I want nothing more than to cast it aside. You don't have to resist every little thing. It will do you no good and I will not lose you. Sees my mother as she grips the edge of the table. I can't. You must attend. You must play the part. She sits back as if she's exhausted, letting her shoulders roll forward and exhaling slowly. Your father is working on brokering another sale as we speak to bring in the extra money we need for. She stops. Her voice catches in her throat. Her eyes become glassy as she puts her hand on top of mine. I love you very much. I would do anything to ensure you're the most beautiful girl in the room when you make your entrance. My whole life has been a building, build up to this. This isn't some little thing. Everything I do, everything I say, it's all about the ball. My path has been chosen for me since birth. My future is already written and I don't have a say in any of it. Yes, and she stares at me blankly as if she can't understand. Don't you want me to be happy? Isn't that what matters most? In the brief moment before her answer, I imagine she'll say yes and tell me I don't have to go. I think of what it would feel like to have her on my side. No. My mother lets go of my hand, bitter disappointed, and envelops me. What matters is that you're safe, that you follow the laws, you're clear as day, right there. She motions to the front door. Happiness is a bonus, Sophia. You're not entitled to it, and the sooner you accept that, the easier your life will be. And if I don't want an easy life, my mother stares at me. She parts her lip to speak and then presses them together, dropping her gaze to the tabletop. Be very careful what you ask for, because you just might get it.
May I be excused? I ask. She nods and I push my chair back from the table and go upstairs. As I reach the top step, I hear my mother crying. A part of me wants to go to her but a part of me doesn't. I love her and I know she loves me. But that's not enough. She will not break the rules even if they require me to deny everything about myself. I go into my room and close the door. Chapter 5 The next morning, I awake just before sunrise. My father is already gone for the day and my mother has begun her work preparing breakfast. Though sits rising under the cloth by the wood stove which she stalks by the and which she stalks and sets a kettle on. I join her in the kitchen and tie an apron around my vest. My mother places a small plate with two biscuits and a sliced apple on the table. She speaks to me over her shoulder as she turns out a ball of dough onto the floor surface of the countertop. The floors will need to be swept and scrubbed, like always, and it's washed deep for the lanyons upstairs. Take the rugs out and give them a good beating. Your father said he might be home early, so we must get to it. When he arrives, be sure to recite the story as soon as you can, because I know he'll be tired and will want to rest. You want me to recite it out loud? I ask. I know that's what we're supposed to do. It's more of a tradition than a rule, but I had done. I hadn't done in a long time. Yes, my mother says curtly. Maybe you're a little rusty and with the boil coming up, you want to know it backward and forward in a case a suitor wants to test your knowledge. I don't even respond. It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. The suitors will test me. I have a strong urge to tell my mother that I'm pretty sure the men gathering at the castle haven't even read the story all the way through because none of it is actually meant for them. It's meant for the rest of us. I just nod. I put on a cloak and start lugging the rugs outside. Would there really be suitors wanting to test me? And does my father really want to hear it? Or is my mother just thinking of every single way someone might try to trip me up once I'm at the ball? The wife of a wealthy man grew ill and knew that her end was near. I still loud. It's still there in my head every word. I'm beating the rugs out when my mother opens a front door. A concerned look on her face. Sophia, I need you to go, Mrs. Bassett. I'm afraid I forget the ribbons that match your dress at her shop, the ones for your hair. You don't want to go, I ask. I get a clear look at her for the first time that morning. She has dark circles under her eyes like she hadn't slept. No, I'm not feeling well. I've sent Handy to tell Mr. Langley's son to be here within the hour to take you. I glance around to see if Handy, our neighbor's young son, has already left. I can walk, I say, or I could take the carriage myself. She say, shakes her head. Alone? Sophia, please, my nerves are already shattered. Don't add it to with your new, with your penchant for trying to break the law. It's not a law. She plants her foot on the stoop with a loud head. You will be taken up to the place in chains if you're caught driving a carriage. And if you go walking alone, you might end up in a far worse situation. Something in her tone strikes me. Her emotions, hugely tightly coiled, seem to be fraying more and more with each passing day. I won't tell her I'd walk through the woods into the city on my own yesterday. She might not survive the shock. Mr. Langley's son will be here soon, she says. He'll take you. She goes inside and I wait in the yard as scheduled. He comes strolling up through dissipating mist. He leans on the guest and gives me a little nod. Morning, he says. He shows me that mischievous smile again. I'm fairly good at reading people, but this boy is a puzzle. The curl of his lip and his smug smile make me think I'm missing something. Ready? He asks. I nod as he pulls out the wooden car that we take to the market instead of the covered carriage we used to travel. 
It's made to haul sacks of grain and has only one white seat in the front. He hitches it to our horse and climbs up. It's cold, I say. We should take the carriage. But I've already caught this swan ready to go. Don't you want to sit next to me? Absolutely not. And if you'd asked me beforehand, I would have told you to hook up the carriage. But you didn't, so here we are. He visits Ivan. So, you run the show around here. That's different. Different? I say quietly. Different never means anything good. The front door creaks open behind me. Is she giving you trouble? My mother calls from the doorway. I don't turn around, but I can feel her eyes boring into the back of my head. No problems, Mrs. Grimmins. Mr. Langley's son shoots me a quick wink. If he expects, thank you for not telling my mother what I said. He's going to be sorely disappointed. I climb up, sitting as far away from his other seat allows. Yangs the reason and the car lurches forward. The temperature stays cool even as the sun rises. I pull my cloak and tight around me, but the air still seeps through. Mrs. Langley's son set the reins in his lap and removes his coat. Here, it's not much, but it should help. He places the coat over my shoulder and I lean away from him, watching his hands and his eyes. I don't know him enough to trust him and most times in a bearer, man does a woman a favourite is because he wants something in return. Am I that off-putting? He raises his arm and gives a puff. Do I smell? I just parted last week. He's trying to be fun. I don't respond. My name's Luke, in case you were wondering. I know, I say flatly. We have never been formally introduced, but I have heard my parents speak of him a little off too often. You're always with your mother. She doesn't let you get a word in edgewise. I watch him out of the corner. Or maybe I don't have much to say. Okay, he grimaces a letter. I was surprised that your outburst back there with a the card. I've never seen a girl refuse a man's request so openly. That's a dangerous thing to do. Are you joking or threatening me? I angle my body so I can raise my leg and kick him over the side of the cart if he gets any ideas. Girls are harassed and manhandled on a regular basis in life. And because of that, I actually have a plan for what to do if someone ever tries to hurt me. If Luke makes one false, false move, I'll smash his nose back into his skull. Maybe kick him where he'd feel it more, most and then run. I can also grab the reins, pull the horse off the road and trip the cart over. I don't care if I get hurt in the process. I'm not going quite here. I wasn't joking, but I wasn't threatening you either. I'm sorry. He looks at me and smiles again. His demeanor is abrasive, but not malicious. He can't be more than 20 tall and lanky, brown skin, black hair, with only the slightest air of self-importance. I still have a hard time reading him. I keep my body in a position to append him, but pose a question as a distraction. Are you preparing for the ball as well? He tosses his head back and laughs. It catches me so off guard that all I can do is stare at him. He composes himself and shakes his head. Not if I can help it. Things are different for me. Why? I ask. He lost some of that bravado he had when he stored up the front gate. He stood in. You're friends with Erin, aren't you? He doesn't look nice. The question seems out of him. Yes, she's one of my best friends. Hmm. He says nodding. Then you'll understand what I mean when I say things are different. The knowing look in his eyes terrifies me. I've seen it before. It's the same look my mother gives me every time I speak Aaron's name. I immediately hop out of the cart and toss his coat back to him. Just wait here, please. Sure, he says. I worry that his friendly man is just a way to get me feel comfortable enough to drop my guard. I hurry to the door of the shop and go in. None of the lamps are lit yet, lit yet and the dapple light from the barely rising sun casts shadows through the room, which feels oddly at rest without the seamstress and her bevy of helpers bustling around. 
a measuring tape had bangs over the edge of the table and dozens of glass beads littered the floor as they had been knocked over without anyone bothering to clean them up i see the ribbons my mother left behind sitting on a table in a canvas bag and i pick them up just then a whimper comes from under the table i step back and look down to see someone sitting there a young boy his knees pulled to his chest as he rocks back and forth hello i say gently the boy's head pokes up from behind his knees his eyes are rimmed with tears he sucks in a gulp of air and wipes his nose with the back of his hand He's dressed in a tattered pair of shacks and a faded shirt, a size too small. The sleeves expose his delicate thin wrists. He seems so fragile. I want to put my arms around him and tell him everything's going to be okay. Even though I have no idea what's wrong, he sobs again. Oh no, please don't cry. Are you all right? I put my hand out, but he squirts back, knocking into the leg of the table and sending more beads scattering to the floor. I won't hurt you as well the Erislan silence of the shop sets me on edge I don't know you he says no i don't think we have met my name is sophia the seamstress is helping me me with my dress and i just came to pick these up i crouch down and hold out the bag of ribbons see his expression softens why are you crying he opens his mouth to speak but hesitates then he scoots closer so he's almost out from under the table He's too loud he says cupping his hands over his ears and shutting his eyes who's too loud i ask confused a man's voice shrill and grating echoes from somewhere over my head heavy footsteps pound across an upstairs room i look up as the entire structure of the house quakes dust shaken free from the wooden beams crisscrossing the ceiling falls down to the shadowy confines of the shop and settles fine like a like a fine powder on the tables and chairs i fight the urge to pick up the boy and bolt out the door the boy lowers his hand his eyes wide my father he's yelling at my mother he's always yelling at her the light streaming through the shop windows illuminates the boy's face he's nearly identical to the seamstress they share the same brown skin dark eyes and dimples at the outer corners of their mouths a loud crash followed by a woman's scream pierces the momentary silence i stand up and the boy squares back i look out the front window and see luik still perched on the cart what a man does in his home in his business that is the rule i should leave but i can't do that you just stay here all right i say okay hansus from under the table i creep to the rear of the show shop where a staircase leads up to the second floor i put my hand on the rail and listen The silence almost as unbearable as the women's scream at the top of the stairs a door and a soft light streams from under, underneath it the stairwell is dark and shadowy with thin shafts of light uh, from under the door illuminating bits of dust floating in the air i take one step up i don't know what i will do when i get to the top knock call out can i even stop what is happening the man's voice sounds again And this time I heard the words clearly. You have kept the money from me, haven't you? He bellows. Then comes a woman's voice. No, I would never. Every cent you make belongs to me. There is a loud thump like someone ran into the door at the top of the stairs, and the door creaks open a few inches. I step up onto the landing and peek inside. I know that. I swear. I I work hard. The seamstress covers against the wall of the small upstairs room. Tears stream, stain her face. Her husband stands over her, his fist clenched. 
Then what is it? There's so little money in this pouch. I wonder why you even bother. Either you are terrible seamstress or you're keeping the money for yourself. He flings the pouch at her and it breaks open, sending a shower of coins tinkling to the floor. Everyone is having a hard time, the woman says. The king has taxed us so steeply that we can scarcely afford grain. Others are suffering too, but they need to make their goals ready for the ball. I take what they can afford to give. That's every red cent, I swear it. You take what they can afford to give? What are we, a, a charity? He raises his fist and the woman winces as if he's already struck her. I put my hand on the door and the floorboard groans under my weight. I cringe as the man's head whips around. He's short and stocky, but his hands are massive. I, I, I am looking for the seamstress, I say, trying to keep my voice from cracking. Who the hell are you? He sticks out his neck and glares at me. My mother purchased some ribbons, but she left them here. Can you help me find them? I look directly at the seamstress as if tuck the ribbons out of sight. If you could, I would appreciate it. The man steps in front of the mo- woman, blocking my view. I call it him. Watch yourself before I send you up to the palace to be forfeited, the man snaps. He can do it. Any head of household could. The only person who can disagree is another head of household. Money, power, class, all those things come into play. But the founding tenet of our laws is the, that women, no matter their standing, are at the mercy of the fickle whims of men. That's how little control I have over my own life. I continue to glare at him as he shuffles off to an adjoining room. The steamstress scrambles to her feet and comes rushing out the door, swimming at her eyes. Your son, she grabs me by the elbow and leads me to the main room of the workshop before. I have a chance to finish my sentence. She bends down, pulls the boy out from under the table and wraps her arms around him. All the while glances nervously towards the back staircase. Her son melts into her, grasping her tightly and sobbing. Tears fell up in my eyes and I have a hard time figuring out if it is my anger or my absolute heartbreak for the seamstress and the son that is getting the better of me. The seamstress gently nuzzles her nose into his ear. She spots the bag of ribbons in my head. I see you have found your missing ribbons. I'm glad you remembered to pick them up. You look lovely. If I hadn't seen what just happened at the belt on her cheek, her tone would have convinced me that nothing was amiss. I didn't mean to introduce, or maybe I did, but I saw your son and heard your husband upstairs. The woman's body tenses, as if she's bracing for what I might say next. She stands, pulling her son up with her and stra- straightens out his clothes. He looks to be no more than seven or eight years old, but the bags under his eyes are those of a child who seemed too much. She kisses him and points towards the room directly across from the main work area. You go get something to eat. Breakfast is on the table. She smiles at him and he looks to the stairs and nods. He embraces her again. She looks down at the boy. Papa knows best, my love. You will grow up to be good men just like him. The boy doesn't smile as he disappears into the other room. The seamstress stresses, straightens out her dress, avoiding my gaze. A hard sigh escapes me. And the seamstress glances over her mountain. Don't pity us, please. That isn't what we need. What do you need? I ask. I step to it. You don't have to. I mean, I could. What could you do? The woman laughs lightly. Oh, you poor thing. You're one of those girls who thinks there's a way out, aren't you? That something will come along and make everything better. She sighs and shakes her head like she's angry. I wish there were. I swear I do. I wish I could tell you to run too hard, but... 
It never would never work. Her voice is so low. I have to lean it close to understand. Nothing can be done. Not a damn thing. I want to believe that there might be a way out. But with every passing days, that feeling fades. I wonder when this woman gave up hoping. You have got your ribbons, and I have got work to do. You'd best be off. I hesitated. You deserve more than this. We all do. The woman pauses. I can see a small cut over her eye. Her lips part and the words are saying something, but she holds back. Please go. Chapter six. I slowly walk out of the shop to find Luke standing next to next to the cart. Everything all right? No, I say, climbing up and taking a seat. Let's go. Luke glances back at the shop and joins me in the cart. I'm sick to my stomach as the cart starts to move. How many people do you think are poorly matched at the choosing ceremony? I ask. Numb. I try to wrap my head around what I just witnessed. Like a clash of personalities? Luke asks. No. I mean like a man takes a wife and then mistreats her, hits her. Luke looks at me out of the corner of his eye. You... Didn't know that sometimes happen. It happens all the time. I say, that's my point. I can't think of how terrible it is to have the two deal with the king's rules and go home to you have your husband beat you. I understand. Luke says, how could you? You aren't being beaten in front of your own child. You're not being forced to go to the palace with a ball. You're what twenty, and you saw you have never been to a ball. We don't have that luxury. Luke stares at me in silence. He pulls the horse into a slow trot and we meander, meander in the general direction of my house. Is there a reason you're going so slow? I ask. He smiles warmly. Just hoping to get near a little more before well, before the ball. I ask. Before some man decides, I'd make a pretty prize and everything in my life is changed forever. Luke looks a little taken aback. His big brown eyes dart around like he's rehearsing what he's about to say. You. Are a real person, Sophia. I don't even know what that's supposed to mean. I say, still skeptical of his intentions. He continues to guide the cart along the road as others pass us. We come to a rise in the road, and Luke brings the cart to a full stop. My heart is up. What? What are you doing? Why? Why are we stopping? Luke looks out over the white swath of land to the east. The sun is high above the horizon. Horizon now, casting an orange glow through the wispy clouds and across the apple orchards. The trees that are every shade of russet and gold as the land prepares to sleep for the winter. He glances at me with his brow furrowed. His mouth wanders into a tight line. I wonder if I might share something with you. He's calm, soft-spoken. He seems very serious, and my curiosity is piqued. But I keep my guard up just in case. All right, what is it? He doesn't speak right away. He gazes off, biting his bottom lip. I have been mentally calculating how I am going to get away from you if you try anything. I say, I am pretty sure you are not going to hurt me, so I want to hear what you have to say. Hurt you? He looks puzzled. Why would I want to do that? I give an exaggerated look around because this is Lyle. That's what happened here. I can't blame you for feeling that way, but but everyone is like that. I pinch the bridge of my nose and shut my eyes for a second. I know that my father is a good man. Liv's father is a good man, and even Luke's father seems like a good man. But these good men aren't making the rules. These decent men are turning a blind eye to indecent acts. If you're not one of the men who would jump at the first chance to put a woman in a place, then I'm not talking about you. He hesitates for a moment before sighing. 
that's fair. I a high pitched whistle sounds from behind me and I turn to see two young men strutting up to us, their chest pushed out smoking. Shit, Luke says under his breath. What's wrong? Nothing, just some people from school. Luke one of the young men shouts. He's smiling wide, but Luke isn't. What are you up to on this beautiful form morning? Just out for a ride? Luke's tone is bit angry. Out for a ride with a girl. The tall man asks. The ring in his voice makes me pause and he looks me over his biddy brown eyes. Remind me of the glass marbles the children on my street play. Do I know you? I ask. The man's head snaps up. Not yet, but maybe we can do something about that. Shut up, Morris, says Luke. Morris? I ask, glancing up at Luke. What a lovely name sounds a lot like Morum. This time Luke smiles right. You've got a smart mouth, Morris says, glaring. Don't you have somewhere to be? Luke inches closer to me. His body has gone rigid and his fists are clenched. Morris smiles, but it makes me uncomfortable. There's nothing kind about it. Are you claiming this wretch at the ball? Morris asks, Luke whistles. Why does it matter to you? I cross my arms. I hate this kind of talk, especially when I'm sitting right there. She doesn't seem like your type, Morris says, grinning as if he said something hilarious. I missed something. Fear clouds Luke's eyes. Morris looks back and forth between us. Oh, oh. He claps his hand on the other man's back and they laugh. She doesn't know, does she? Luke looks down at the reams gathered in his lap. Morris steps forward and takes my hand. I try to pull away, but he has me by the wrist and holds it right. Luke here has all kinds of secrets. You should ask him about them sometimes. He looks at you. What was that young fellow's name? Was it Luke? Before you can finish, Luke's fist connects with Morris's right cheek, standing, stand, sending spittle and at least two teeth flying from his mouth. He lets go of me and stumbles back, clutching his jaw. The other man stands still stunned. Luke hops out of the car as Morris clutches his face. If you're ever so much as breath a syllable of his name in my presence, I will make you regret it. Luke says, consider this your only warning. Morris's face is ruddy, dripping with sweat, his mouth bloody. He tenses like he's going to attack Luke again, though I can't understand how he thinks that will be a good idea. Don't do it, his friend says, to him reading his expression. Let's get out of here. He takes Morris by the arm and pulls him away until they disappear down the road. Luke hops back into the car. Morris' broken teeth lie like poles in the cracks of the cobble street. Should, should we pick those up and return them to him? I ask. Maybe put them on a string he can wear around his neck. Luke chuckles, massaging his hand and shredding out his shirt. I'm, I'm sorry about that. You don't have to apologize, I say. I would pay money to see despicable men get socked in the jaw. Morris was trying to get under your skin. Why does he dislike you so much? Luke looks at me and shakes his head. It's it's complicated, Morris said. I'm not your type. It's okay. I'm not offended. You're not my type either. I'm trying to lighten the mood. But Luke phones. Oh, I know. My skin pricks up. Luke sighs and leaks back in his street. Uh, leans back in his seat. He struggles with something. And with each passing moment, I grow more afraid of what it is. Luke looks thoughtful as he speeds off. Everything we do is measured against Cinderella's story. But what happens if, well, let's say... He shifts around, fumbling on the wheels. Why is the story the only way of doing things? I'm not sure what you mean, I say. But we should get going, my mother. Luke glances over at me. When my sister read that story as a child, I... Luke, I start. I remember thinking Prince Charming would make a good husband for me. What? I'm breathing so fast that little orbs of light dance around the edge of my vision. 
Did you want to marry the prince or maybe the princess? He asked. Why are you asking me this? My voice is barely a whisper and my heart pounds. I, I have to go. I don't want to make you uncomfortable and I swear I'll never say a word about any of this to anyone. His face is tightly drawn, his eyes downcast. He struggles to find the words to continue. It's just that I, I know about you and Erin. A sinking fell feeling overtakes me. What about me and Erin? I overheard your mother talking to my mother. He watches me carefully, reading my expression. What did she say? I can't imagine my mother telling anyone about my feelings. She doesn't even want to hear me talk about it. She said she was afraid you couldn't hide your feelings for Erin, that sometimes it was like you didn't even want to. The world has suddenly become unnaturally quiet. Carriages pass by us, but I don't hear their wheels on the road. I don't see anything but Luke's face. It never occurred to me that my mother would confide in anyone other than my father. Why would she do that, I ask? Why would she talk to your mother about me? He angles his body towards me. It's it's true then. An almost hopeful look spreads across his face. I don't say anything, but my silence is confirmation enough for me. I know what it's like to feel as if everyone wants you to be something you're not. His eyes soften in his eyes. When I was 17, I fell in love with a boy named Louis. That's who Morris was referring to. He was a light in the world that was so dark. So dark, Sophia, you can't even imagine. Yes, I can. I say without thinking, being face to face with someone who might understand how I feel overwhelms me. I wait for him to continue. He allowed me to envision what life could be like for me when I was with him. Nothing else mattered. We planned to flee, but when Morris and his brother, Edward, found out about us, they told our classmates, and of course the news reached Louis' parents. They asked him if it was true, and he would not deny it. They took him to the places for free. I never saw him again. His eyes filled with tears. They gave him up? Just just like that? It's horrifyingly simple for some people to forfeit their own children. I've seen it happen a dozen times, but it never gets any easier to imagine. I reach out and put my hands over his I'm I'm so sorry. He blinks back to us. My parents would have done the same to me if my sister hadn't convinced, convinced me that them that our relationship was a face that I'd grow out of. She knew it was a lie, and I think my parents did as well, but they chose to believe it rather than surrender me to the palace. My heart shatters into a thousand pieces for what he has lost, what we have all lost. People who don't fit nicely into the boxes the kings of Mercedes have defined are simply erased as if our lives don't matter. Leo hangs his head. Have you ever heard of a man marrying another man? A woman being in love with another woman of people who find their hearts lies somewhere in the middle or with neither. Only as a cautionary tale that ends with people imprisoned or dead. I slump down against the seat, crushed by the hopeless feeling that's always seemed to find me. Luke picks up the reins and we begin to move. I can avoid the ball for as long as I choose, he says, and people wouldn't think twice if I'm old and grey before I go out to the palace. He shifts as if he's uncomfortable with that. You don't have that privilege. And my heart breaks for you and Erin and for all the rest of us who have to hide. All the rest of us? I ask Luke Moons. The kings that have ruled Mercedes would like you to believe that you are unknown, but it's not true. People wear masks so they can fit in and stay safe. Can you blame them? No, I guess not, I say. Isn't that what I'm doing? Hiding, pretending, just trying to stay safe. 
as we approach my house the weight of our revelations bears down on us and the feeling of utter despair is palpable i climb out taking the bag of ribbons from the bed of the cart what will you do lucas i shrug i don't feel like i have any choice we should look for an out says luke and at the first opportunity we should run as far away as possible do you think things are different past the towers i think of what might lie beyond the capital beyond the farthest borders of mosles maybe for now just try to stay safe that's all either one of us can do he reaches out and passes a few silver coins into the palm of my hand your mother feels better when she pays me for driving the car but i have told her it's not necessary maybe you should you should keep it prepare for your great escape i take the coins even though i don't think that there will be any an escape not for anna and me not for luke or lev or anyone else we are all trapped here our stories already return